I asked the team to do that song. It's a secular song, but the reason I asked them to do it is because I think it so expresses the cry of our culture these days, and that is where, where is the love? Where is the love in our world and in our relationships in this series called Tug of War Relationships? What we see is so much hatred all over the place. We see it on the playgrounds, we see it at school, we see it at work, we certainly see it in politics, we see it in religion, and we see it in race and ethnicities. If hate were a biological disease, we would say it's pandemic. It just seems to permeate the very fabric of society no matter where you live, whether it's in the backwaters of the world or in its largest cities, it's everywhere. In fact, here in America, there's about 917 organized hate groups. In the last two years, there's been a 900% increase in the number of people who will go on those hate group social sites or social outlets and mark like or make certain comments uh, that sound to be in agreement with them. And so when social scientists look at all this and they say, what is the cause of hatred and how do we cure it? Oftentimes, they will say things like Bernard Golden says, a psychologist, he says, We've got to teach people how to unlearn hate because hate is a learned behavior. It's a learned expression, a learned attitude. And I think that's part of the problem why we can't overcome hate. I mean, you can try to unlearn it. You can try to help your kids not learn it. But the reality is that's not the ultimate cause of hate in our world. The ultimate cause of hate is much deeper. It is in each one of us. It's something we're born with. It's not something we learn. And so if we're going to cure hate, we've got to look at the cause of hate, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So I want you to take your Bibles out, because we're going to go back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, as we do it. We're going to focus on the cause this morning, because we need to. You can't cure a disease if you don't understand where it comes from. And then next weekend, we're going to focus on the cure of it. Now, I want to challenge all of our students who are here. So if you are in junior high or fifth, sixth grade, or in elementary I'm going to encourage you in a few moments to draw with me because I'm going to do a lot of different drawings because uh, we're really going to look at theology and draw it out. And if you do the drawing, you bring your drawing back next weekend. We have ice cream for you in the commons, all right? Which then causes me to say to those of you who don't fit the category of children and students, please do not pretend to be one, all right? <laughs> so here we go. Let's begin in the book of Genesis looking at the cause of hate. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Let's draw this out. I've done this before with you, but we're going to enhance it uh, more. And I think you'll even get a better understanding, as I have, as we look at this together. I'm drawing upon a resource of a man who has influenced me with his writings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great theologian. He wrote a book called Ethics, and he wrote a book, actually, on the first three chapters of Genesis. 
But we know from our understanding of scriptures that before anything else was, God existed. God existed. God has no beginning and God has no end. Don't ask me to explain it to you, it's a mystery. But God has always been. And then in God's own timing, one day, he called everything that we see and know into being. He created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And although each thing that God spoke into being was very unique, none of them reflected him until you get to about verse 26. And God prepares to do something very dramatic. He creates something that reflects him. He creates this creature. And this creature that he creates is man. So God creates Adam and puts him in the garden. The question is, in what way did Adam bear the likeness of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the way that he bore the likeness of God is with freedom. Well, what does that mean, freedom? Bonhoeffer says it was a freedom not of or a freedom from, but he says it was a freedom, it was a freedom for. So a freedom for what? A freedom for loving God and a freedom for loving others. So unlike all the other creatures that God made on earth, Adam was unique in that Adam had the freedom to know God and to receive God's love for him and then return that love back to God. And like I said, God then also gave him the capacity to use this freedom for another person. And so God then takes out of Adam, one of his ribs, if you remember, and God creates the woman And by the way, any resemblance to anybody here is purely accidental, all right? And uh, brings her to Adam. Now, guys, men, husbands especially, when God brings Eve, the woman, to the man, man responded and said, that was not impressive. So I'll give you another chance. If you're sitting here going, what's that all about? You should have been here last weekend. We really wowed each other, didn't we? All right, and I've been hearing by, by way of conversations, people just telling me that it's really helped them out in the relationship. So guys, uh, look at your wife if she's here, not me. And on the count of three, I'm gonna look at my, my beautiful wife here. Count of three, we're gonna say what Adam said. When God brought the woman, he said, wow, wow. That was so much better. How many, of you, how many of you ladies got wild this week? Let me see your, yeah, did you like that? How many of you want your, your husband to stop it? Don't do it anymore. I'm sick of it, all right? Don't wow me again, all right? Hopefully you've been wowing each other. Don't forget, you're going to work on this for two weeks. Remember, you're going to work on, on encouraging, romanticizing, and forgiving each other. You can make it. You can do it, all right? All right, let's get back to theology. That's enough meddling, all right? So God brings the woman to the man. The man in the Hebrew, it was like a wow. He was so pleased. And so now they are sharing their love with God that he's given to them and with each other. Now, there's a passage of scripture which is kind of unique in Genesis chapter 2, 25. It's kind of like TMI in the Bible, too much information. And it says in Genesis 2, 25, and they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Why does the writer, why does God use the writer to tell this very personal fact about Adam and Eve, that they were naked and not ashamed? Well, the nakedness, they were truly naked, it speaks of their innocence. They were innocent. 
they're innocent before God, and listen to this, they're innocent before each other, which is very much the opposite of hatred. They had no fears. Neither Adam or Eve feared that God would hurt them or that they would hurt each other. They didn't feel vulnerable. They felt safe. They felt secure. Do you feel that way? Do we feel that way in our culture, in our world today? Absolutely not. We fear being naked. And I'm not just talking about physically naked. Can you imagine, this will help you understand what it was like in the garden, can you imagine living in your home without walls? Can you imagine living in your home without locks and doors? Can you imagine having no passwords? I forget mine often, but you know that drill. Can you imagine no encryption, no protection of your data? Can you, can you imagine living in a world where there's no insults? There's no put downs? No one wants to take advantage of you. There's no violence. I mean, what a world that would be, right? That's what it was like. That's what it will be like someday when Christ returns. But right now, we are very, very insecure people. Every one of us is insecure. You know, sometimes people say, are you insecure? I'm not insecure. Everybody here is insecure. Y'all wore clothes. Everybody here is insecure. You have locks on your doors. Everybody here is insecure because everybody here fears somebody's going to take something that we have. Somebody is going to hurt us. Somebody's going to violate us. Somebody's going to intrude on our lives. We fear that greatly in our lives. We work hard and we spend all kinds of money to be secure. In the garden, there was none of that. Do you know why? Because in the garden, there was freedom. There was freedom for. Now, let's add to the picture, and I don't have enough space, so I gotta rip this off, and we'll start over again. Let's look at this, we have God, and God creates the man, and God creates the woman. He puts them in the garden, right? Right, you with me? Okay, are you drawing? Yeah, right, all right, okay. You're missing out by not drawing, I'm telling you something. Um, yeah. So then God comes along and God puts two particular trees in the midst of the garden. And he says to Adam and Eve, of all the other trees in the garden, you can eat, enjoy yourself. But these two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, those, those you, can't, you can't eat from. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of that tree, you cannot have it. Those trees belong to me. All the rest are yours. And if you eat from that tree, if you take what doesn't belong to you, Adam, you'll die, which is really interesting because Adam would have had no clue what death meant. No clue what death meant. Neither did he understand what good and evil was. So what is God's purpose in all this? God's purpose in all of this is to say to Adam, Adam, there's something called death and life. There's something called good and evil. Leave that up to me. I will be your source of life, Adam, and I will be your source of what is good and what is evil. You just, all you have to do is trust me. So what God does is he creates limits. This is really an important word. So far we've got freedom, now we've got limits, okay? So I'll put freedom up here to remind us briefly. I apologize, I can't get on my knees and do this. All right, you've got freedom, and you've got limits. 
And God says, if you observe the limits I've given you, you're going to have wonderful freedom, which doesn't compute with our minds. Because in our minds, if you have limits, how can you have freedom? We'll get back to that, okay? Also, I want to remind you that Adam and Eve are God's creatures. And that doesn't compute well with us. We don't like to be creatures. There's a really good reason why we don't like to be called creatures. So think of ourselves that way, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But God says, I'll be a source of life. I'll be the source of what is right and what is wrong. I just want you to trust my word. So God's limit is God's word. And then we have a problem. We get to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, another character enters the story. It's the serpent. Now, there's no indication that the serpent is Satan as much as the serpent becomes a vehicle through which Satan works. I've been working on my serpent drawing because my, my previous attempts yield what looks like earthworms or gummy worms. So this is my new attempt, all right? How's that? See, all right. Now, if we had the capacity to do a close-up on it, you'd be overwhelmed. But anyway, so the serpent shows up, right? And the serpent speaks to the woman, the man in the Hebrew is standing right next to her. And the serpent's goal is to get Adam and Eve to violate God's limit. Now, if the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, or hey, Eve, hey, Adam, I want to ruin your lives. I want to make you miserable. I want to make, I want, I want you guys to die. Adam and Eve are just not going to listen to it, right? And he, and he rarely comes at us this way. He rarely comes at us and says, hey, I want you to try this. I want you to do that. I want you to go there. I want you to think this. Because, man, I want to ruin your life. I want to ruin your relationship. I want to ruin your body. I want to destroy you. I mean, most of us are going to go, no, thank you. Don't want that. So he's got to find a way, he's got to find a way to get them to violate God's truth. So therefore, he has to attack God's word. And here's how he attacks God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, one of the most important verses in the Bible. If you want to understand why we have hatred, why there's sin, and why we succumb to temptation. He says, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And if I had a highlighter, underliner, I would put it right under here. Did God really say? Question mark. Now think about this with me. He needs to get her and Adam to think about what God has said. But he needs to do it in a way that he causes them to kind of speculate about what God has said and to judge what God has said. Therefore, what better way than to say, did God really say that? Just by the question alone, Adam and Eve are going to look at God's word from the viewpoint of a judge. They are going to now evaluate God's word. And the serpent's goal is to get them to evaluate God's word based on how they feel and based on what he's telling them. As though what he's saying to them is, I know something about God you don't know. Let me fill in the blank. God's only revealed X amount to you I know more about him. Did God really say you can't eat any of that fruit? Now, notice how he distorts what God has said. He knows what God said. You can have all the fruit you want except for those two. But he just kind of bronzes it out. Is, is God that miserly you can't have fruit for any of these trees? And he works the same way today. And I tell you, he works the same way today, and we come under his influence all the time. 
For instance, did God really say that there's only one way to be saved? Or as some people put it, did God really say there's only one way to heaven? I mean, think about it for a minute, would you please? Look at all these other religions. Look at the people who work so hard to live a good life. Now, if you were God, would you condemn them? Come on. Maybe, maybe you have misunderstood what God said. Maybe it didn't get written down the right way. I mean, think about how you feel. Think about what's going through your mind right now. I mean, God made you, so, I mean, if you think this way, don't you think that's a reflection of the fact that God must think that way? God's bigger and greater than you, then certainly something must be wrong with what God said or we don't understand it properly. Did God really say that sex outside of marriage is forbidden? I mean, come on, really, did God say that? I mean, pay attention to your body for a moment. Those of you who are adults, as long as you consent, I mean, what is marriage anyway? It's just some human legalistic thing, you know, and everybody's culture has different ceremonies. So, hey, as long as you love each other, it doesn't mean you have to be married to each other. As long as you both consent, did God really say that? I mean, come on, what do you feel right now? What do you think right now? Maybe we misunderstood what God said. Did God really say that marriage is just between a man and a woman? I mean, think about that. Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? Maybe it got mis misinterpreted. Maybe it got misconstrued. I mean, what do you think? What do you feel right now? You look at life. What, what makes sense to you? Does it make sense to you? If it doesn't make sense to you, if it's nonsensical to you, well, God's not nonsensical. Therefore, it makes sense that something's probably wrong with the way it got written down or we just totally misunderstand it. I'm filling the blank for you. Did God really say? And I could go on and on and on. What effect does it have on Eve? Did God really say? Well, we go back to the passage of Scripture. It says, the woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. So she got it right. Good job, Eve. You're agreeing with God. But then watch what happens. God said, you must not eat it. True. You will die. True. But notice what else she says, even touch it. We have no record of God ever saying you can't touch it. Now, maybe God did, and we're not told about it, and he's telling us about it, or it's very possible that she's exaggerating. How many of you have ever exaggerated? You see, it's interesting how we embellish things. I, I do it sometimes. Yeah, we can't eat it. Can't even touch it. We do the same thing. We embellish. We think, we make, you know, things we don't like, we always make worse to drive home a point. Right? Our kids do it, we do it, right? And that's what she does. What has happened to Eve? Think about this for a moment, all right? Right now, we think of them being under God. Now, Adam and Eve have moved above God. So now, a miniature Adam and Eve. Now you've got them up here, and what are they doing? They are, they are judging what God has said, and when you judge what God has said, you are judging God himself. So what is the effect of all of this? What happens? Well, we move on to the passage of Scripture, and we find out that Satan goes to the jugular. He says, you won't die. Now that I've got you judging God, I want to tell you something. I know something about God. You know something about God. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened. He's been hiding something from you. Isn't he mean? Isn't he greedy? Isn't he cruel? Your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. Want to be like God? Want to be like God? Then, then don't stay in the limits. 
you will now know both good and evil, which in essence means, Bonhoeffer says, you will be the source of good and evil. You will define good and evil for yourself. So what happens is I can be my own God. I'll decide what's right. I'll decide what's wrong. You'll be your own God. You'll decide what's right, what's wrong. My idea of right, you may think is wrong. Your idea of wrong, I might think is right, and etc. We'll all be our own little gods in our own little universe. And we're all going to live together harmoniously being our own little gods. Right. Watch what happens. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. Listen, you wouldn't sin if sin wasn't made to look, if you didn't convince yourself that it looked good and it was delicious. Even the worst of sins can feel good and seem delicious. Gossip can feel good and delicious. Killing someone is hard for us to comprehend, but in the moment satisfies a desire. Fed by hate, fueled by hate. Gossip is fueled by hate. So, it goes on and says, its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So important words are shame, nakedness, cover. So let's explore that a little bit together. Let's try to understand what that's teaching us about hatred and about ourselves and, you know, about our parents and about our children and all those important things, all right? First of all, when they open their eyes, what do they see? They see themselves, right? It's like they've been looking through their eyeballs and couldn't see their eyeballs. Now all of a sudden they can see their eyeballs too. They see themselves. They see themselves as independent. They've been severed, cut off, separated from God. That's what they wanted. Now they're on their own, okay? No longer do they depend on God for what is good and what is evil. They now become the deciders of what is good and what is evil. And what you expect is that in their emancipation, they're all going to go, yay! But they don't. As soon as they see themselves, as soon as they know they've been cut off, as soon as they realize they have their independence that they longed for, what is it that they feel? Shame. Shame. That's what it said. Remember, shame. So what is shame? Be careful. Don't confuse shame for remorse. Two different things. Remorse means I recognize I'm wrong and I'm sorry. I feel bad about it. Are remorseful. Nowhere in the story are Adam and Eve ever remorseful. You never read them say, God, I blew it, I'm sorry, forgive me. It doesn't happen. What does Adam do when he's finally exposed? He says to God, the woman you gave me, he goes from wow to whoa. Look what you did to me. He not only blames the woman, he blames God. And hatred is born in his heart. He hates the woman. He hates God. 
The woman blames the serpent, that serpent you created, that creature over there. She blames God. And we've been blaming ever since. Gods never admit they're wrong. Gods don't say, I'm sorry. Gods have to pin the blame on somebody else. That is God and others. So the question is, what is shame? Well, Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, if you wanted to find shame, shame is to acknowledge that something is missing. So the question is, when Adam and Eve open their eyes, and they realize something is missing, what's missing? Is it closed? No, it's not closed, it's missing. What is missing? What is missing is this. They realize what they're now missing is freedom. Freedom to be for God. Now they're at enmity with God. Freedom for loving the other. Now they realize there's enmity towards the other. So they violate the limit that God gave them because they felt it was too restrictive, that it, that it took away freedom. And what they discover is that in their human freedom, this is really, really important. In their human freedom, I can't write upside down. In their human freedom, they actually have great limits. So with God's limit, there was great freedom. With human freedom, there's huge limits. And so they cover themselves up. And what do they cover themselves up? They go, oh, fig trees, fig trees, fig leaves. Well, yes, but not really. The fig leaves, there's just nothing. What they really cover themselves up with is pride. And pride is the unwillingness to be remorseful. Pride is the unwillingness to say, we blew it. It's my fault. I own it. I violated your limit. And what you have is anger and hatred. I hate you, God, for your limit, because they're all going to die. We know that's factual, right? And they hate each other because, well, I'll show you why, all right? One more. Isn't that beautiful sound? All right? By the way, if afterwards you want these, I'm happy to sell them to you, all right? Just kidding. Uh, so let's go back to this now, all right? Um, there are three, there, I think there are three causes of hate, right? First cause of hate, we've already talked about, limits. We don't like limits. Now, we don't mind limiting somebody else, but don't limit me. How many of you ever, how many of you... <laughs> We just have an honest confession to him. How many of you have ever driven over the speed limit? See your hands. Wow. There's a room full of sinners and lawbreakers. Okay? I have also. Why do we do it? Why do you drive over the limit? You don't want to be limited. And when you get pulled over for it, it makes you angry. Pull that guy over, don't pull me over. I'm a god. I can break the limits. Okay? There's a second issue that causes hatred, and I'll, I'll call it to possess. In order for me to feel free, I need to possess. I need to possess money. So if I don't get paid enough, or not paid what I think I should get, I hate the person, or I hate whatever system doesn't give me what I need. 
in a material culture, the more I have, the freer I feel. But the weird thing is the more you have what? The more you, you feel like you need to have again, right? We possess people. I need to own you, I need to control you so I have greater freedom. Even sexually, we wanna possess the person for our desires to be met. And when anybody resists us, we get spiteful, we feel hateful. And then thirdly, superiority. Superiority. And this smacks at the issue of racism. It's Martin Luther King who said the problem with racism is the sense that one race feels superior to another race. There's all kinds of reasons why people feel superior to other races. It can be anything from, you know what, I'm smarter. I have done more. I'm a Westerner. Your livability depends on my brains and my capacities. And in order for me to live this way and to provide what everybody else needs in the world, I need you then to be my slave. You know, there are 46 million slaves in the world today. Boys and girls, men and women. And what a lot of us don't realize as Westerners, and I'll go soft on this one because we're all guilty to some degree, is in order for us to enjoy our economic status and freedom in the Western world, we have to keep people enslaved to a lower wage and lifestyle so we can live this lifestyle. That is a form of hate. It is. It's what you got to call it. Let me give you two stories that will help bring this into perspective. A couple weeks ago, I was in Guwahati in Northeast India. I love the people of India, Bangladesh, Nepal. And one of the pastors there who I met, I knew his backstory. He was a man carrying a very heavy burden. The reason he was carrying a very heavy burden is because a couple of weeks prior, he had sent out an email, and I got the email, and there was a picture of it of a beautiful young lady in her 20s who had converted to Christianity and was now being trained to be a pastor, a church planner, what we call a Timothy. Well, her old boyfriend, because she had broken up with him because of her conversion and her wanting to follow God and do the right things, was very angry with her, and he lured her back, and he tried to force her to give up her faith and tried to force her back into relationship with him. And when she refused, he murdered her. So the second picture I get was her mangled body on a railroad track. Hatred, the worst kind, caused by limits, caused by possession, caused by a sense of superiority in his heart and in his mind led to her death. I want your body. I don't like the fact that you have left the faith that we practice, that you have left me. I am superior. My religion is superior. Therefore, you must. She refused. She gets killed. He goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? But let me give you a different story because here's what happens. Here's what concerns me. Oftentimes, what we do is we think of hatred in its worst, in its worst forms, what we see in the news, right? We think of it really, especially in terms of violence, and, and that, is, that is bad. But I want you to understand, hatred stems, all forms of hatred stem from a common ground, a common distortion in our life. So now I want you to imagine a five-year-old. Johnny, I'll call him Johnny. You cannot play with your tricycle in the streets. But I want to. 
No, you can't. It's dangerous out there. You have to stay in the yard. But I want to. No, you cannot. You must stay in the yard. I hate you. How many of you ever had your child tell you they hate you? Okay? If they didn't say it, you know what they're thinking, right? Limits. I hate you because you've drawn a limit around me. And yet you love them very much. Your limit is actually for their freedom. Or how about possession? You've got five cookies on the table. Johnny, you can have two cookies. I want three. You can have two cookies. I want three. You'll not get any cookies. I hate you. What's that all about? I want. I want. Little Johnny goes to school for the first time. He's on the playground with his other little buddies in the neighborhood. There's a child there whose skin is a different color, or there's a child there who has perhaps a physical, mental, emotional challenge. There's a child there who just by their very nature seems different. And pretty soon they start bullying that child. Why do they start bullying? Because of a sense of superiority. I'm better. All hatred comes right back here. So what is the cause of hatred? Now, this is going to be a little confusing. Hang in there with me. What causes hatred in the world? The answer to that question is freedom. That's the cause of hatred. Freedom. What is the cure for hatred? Freedom. (laughs) Say, wait a minute. You just said freedom was the cause. Now you're telling me that freedom is a cure. What do you mean by that? That's why we have the series extending to next weekend. (laughs) But you understand the difference between freedom as God defines it and freedom as men define it. I'm telling you what, human freedom is the most limiting thing you'll ever experience. That's why there's so much hatred in this world. God's freedom is truly free. We'll talk about it next weekend. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray and ask that you would move and stir in our hearts and in our minds, dear God, to not look at others, but to look at ourselves, Lord. Father, the thought that we could cure hatred in the world is overwhelming and impossible. But God, we can cure it in our lives by your help, by your grace. We can move into what is real and true freedom, the freedom that comes in Christ, the freedom that comes in your word. So Lord, in these days to come, as we examine ourselves, would you show us where the seeds of hatred are? We don't even think of it as hatred. But it is. When we judge somebody, when we gossip about somebody, when we feel ill will towards someone, God, it is, it's hatred. And we would just like to stop it. It is so draining. It is so consuming. So Lord, I pray, prepare our hearts, even as we sing this song. A song about loving, a song about showing kindness, a song, Father, about reflecting Jesus. Begin to speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.